What's good, everybody? I'm John G. Stremski, host of New York, New York with JJ. The first podcast on The Ringer and Spotify dedicated to you, the New York sports fan. We've got episodes three nights a week, plus bonus episodes whenever news breaks. So make sure you follow the show on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Lucasfilm and Disney Plus presenting an all new Star Wars series, The Acolyte. Stream the two-episode premiere June 4th and witness an investigation into a shocking crime spree where secrets will emerge and no one is safe from the truth. The Acolyte, two-episode premiere, streaming June 4th only on Disney+. Plus. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is Larry Wilmore, and you have tuned in to Black on the Air. That's what you're listening to. Good to be back with you. Um, we have a real interesting show today. My old pal Roy Wood Jr. from The Daily Show. Um, we've seen stand-up on Comedy Central and in lots of things here and there. We have a chat about comedy, Daily Show, and other stuff. Really, really a lot of fun. I think you're going to enjoy that. Roy's a good dude. Really, really funny. Um, I think he should definitely be talked about more in terms of who are some of the funniest people out there. Roy is hilarious. And... Uh, his latest uh, special, which is on Comedy Central, uh, is that right now. So you guys should go see that. Man, there's a lot going on in the world right now. I'm Before I get to that, I, guys, I'm just in a lot of pain. Just my Lakers are playing so horribly. It's just sad. And uh, I know nobody cares. <laughs> nobody. People love hating the Lakers. It's fine. I don't mind. You know, um, we've had our share of winning and everything, you know. But, man, it's so interesting for me to see how much people enjoy just Pouncing, pouncing on my Lakers when they're down. Pouncing them, kicking them when they're down. Kicking them. Uh, I can take it, though. I can take it. Because they don't hate the Lakers as much as I love the Lakers, you know. And as much as I hate the way um, they're playing right now. You may, I don't care how much you hate the Lakers. Sorry. You don't hate them as much as I love them. It's not equal. So it doesn't bother me. Don't bug me. And uh, what about your team? Tell me about how your team is doing. <laughs> you know. So anyhow, I say that knowing there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. Um, some of it I feel like I'm interested in. Some, oh man, it's just hard. Like the whole politics and everything. I think Biden had a State of the Union this week. God, guys, I was so not interested in it. Just barely interested. I watched a little bit of it. And I couldn't really... To stay engaged. Um, and it's funny because when I was doing the nightly show and back in the daily show days, 
Like that was an event. We had to watch those things no matter who was president. You know, we'd stay up all night writing jokes about it. It was a big part of a show. I think Colbert still has a live show dedicated to it. But man, I just felt, I don't know why. I'm just not interested in it. Maybe I'll engage more during this year in some of the politics. But the big story, of course, is the Ukraine or is Ukraine, which everyone call it. And what is happening with the Russian invasion and everything. That is the big news of this week. It's crazy, man. Um, There's a lot of issues around it. But, you know, I want to talk about this in a slightly different way. Because it's, it's interesting to me how Ukraine is playing out. Like, to me, it's exposing something that is a little different now in how we are engaging in terms of war and standoffs with other countries. Um, war used to be a very simple matter. You know, you got mad at another country, you fought it out. <laughs> you, know? you got on the battlefield, you got your trenches, you know, tanks come in, whatever. But war became very different, of course, uh, post-nuclear age, because you had to be careful about engaging with people that had nukes, right? So it took on a little different thing. Wars were a little more um, isolated with different types of powers, you know, engaged in, you know, these regional conflict things, you know, but there, we haven't had the superpower conflict uh, since World War Two, you know, with these huge major countries really going at it with everything, right? Um, that's really the last time when you think about it. And I think what's interesting is people feel like, are we on the brink of that now? Are we on the brink of the U.S. and Russia really going at it? We haven't felt this way since, you know, the Kennedy administration in those days of the Cold War. But part of how this has unfolded kind of exposes how we don't play war anymore in that big arena, you know, because the United States really, well, first of all, we're war weary, you know, been, we're in Afghanistan for so fucking long. People are definitely war weary, especially when it feels like, what, do, what is at stake for Americans there? Do I really want to send my son or daughter into that kind of arena to be killed in for what? You know, so people, Americans have always held that position before, like some shit happens to us directly, like Pearl Harbor, that kind of thing. Completely understandable. So whether it was Bush or Obama, Trump, Biden, you know, there's never been a signal to Putin that if he's an aggressor, we're going to fight him. Like, that's not a signal. If you do some shit, we're going to fuck you up. <laughs> you know, we're going to get in the ring and we're going to fight you. Not been said, you know. In fact, when Putin took Crimea, uh, 2014, I think it was, General Obama, Obama came out with some sanctions and stuff. Putin's like, whatever. I can deal with sanctions. Whatever. You know. And we kind of forgot about that. It kind of just happened. And and now it's funny that Putin is, you know, in Ukraine right now, trying to do the same thing. But now it's a little different. It's not just... 
it doesn't feel like it's just sanctions. And and let's talk about Putin for a second before we get back to that, because Putin, it Putin feels even differently than he even felt when that happened in 2014. And, and many people who are better experts than I am have talked about this. Like, I mean, he seems really crazy. Like, it almost seems like he wants to have one of these old school large scale wars. Doesn't it though? I mean, it really does. His type of rhetoric is like, you want to fuck with me? This is war, motherfucker. Like he keeps using this type of language and directed at us. Like he wants to engage us and he can't be serious about that because there's as at much stake for Putin in a war like that as there is for us. So it really doesn't make sense the type of language that he's using as opposed to um, the kind of Hitlerian language, you know, when he wanted to go into the Sudetenland or taking over Poland, they were always aggrieved about something. It was his, it was their right. They were saving Germans and there was all this bullshit that he said, but it was never, well, if, if you're going to do this, then motherfucker, I'm coming after you. Like not even Hitler's, he was, did that type of language. He was always the aggrieved one or that type of thing. Putin has really made it clear, almost like he wants to fight which is very weird, you know, and a lot of people think that, you know, since COVID, Putin's gotten just kind of unhinged, it seems like, like, I, I like to say he's predictably unpredictable now, you know, um, like we should expect no less from someone so unhinged but have you seen like those pictures of him like when he takes meetings with people and he's like at a table and it's like this table that's a mile long and you know either one person's at the other end of it or several people are at the end of it it looks like like stanley kubrick staged that for a film or something like it's a moment in a kubrick film is what it looks like to me it's crazy you know but it goes to show that who are we dealing with here? You know, I think the world is a bit on edge in terms of what are Putin's, what is his actual goal? You know, people have talked about, you know, he's concerned about NATO getting so close, blah, 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 you know, whatever. But it doesn't seem like that. It feels like there's, there's more happening here that is something to be concerned about, you know, and... I don't think we want to get in a fist fight with Russia. I don't think we want to do that, you guys. Because, you know, what is that expression, you know, when you, uh, oh, I don't know, I'm not even going to try to approximate it. But it's getting in the mud with somebody who, that's where they live, is in the mud. You know, it's fighting that fight. But who knows what the fuck will happen if we're in a war like that? And is this the type of person? Is he more in hinge right now than, um, what's his name, North Korea? My brain is farting all over the place. You know, is he going to use nukes? I mean, who knows? But what's interesting about this is the approach the world is taking, I think, may have ramifications that we haven't quite considered that might be interesting. That not only might change how we fight, but might change how we just approach um, a certain class of people in general. So we've decided to have these sanctions against Russia, many different types. But the most interesting types of sanctions are the ones directed at the oligarchy, right? At these uh, stuffy rich oligarchs snatching their yachts, you know, making it impossible for them to to access their money or, you know, use their wealth in different ways, travel, all that kind of stuff. But it's aimed at crippling 
um, I'm, I'm being, I'm talking in very general terms here, so you have to excuse me. But it's really aimed at crippling the lifestyle of those who, you know, who we feel just have way too fucking much and have lived off the teat of ordinary people for way too long, you know, have pilfered the system, if you will, you know. I believe this type of, and it may work, you know, there's, of course, there's going to be sanctions against the Russian people and they may rise up and all that kind of stuff. And the resentment towards the oligarchy and that privileged class may be part of that as well. So this might be interesting to me um, in terms of what will we see in the future? What, How will this type of approach change the world if it is effective and it causes Putin to withdraw or something else happens? By the way, this could be over, not necessarily by him withdrawing, but by maintaining a presence in Ukraine and people just come to an agreement. I mean, we have to be honest, that could be how this ends too. Not necessarily in the way that we think. Ukraine might be fucked, seriously, and we and the world may be okay with that. Right? Welcome to the real world. But if something works where it feels like, no matter if he stays in Ukraine or withdraws, but it feels like Putin pulling back the um, approach of attacking the oligarchy, I think may have an interesting impact on the world in the future because people will realize that they now have a weapon against the people who they feel have just way too fucking much, you know? Um, And think about, I would like to know, what side of this conflict are the world's billionaires? I would like to know that. I would like to take a poll of the billionaires. And what side are you on in this? Are you on the oligarch side or are you on the on this other side? Because think about it. I mean, pay your fair share is a very, um, it's a very friendly slogan. Uh, the word, the word that's omitted from that is please, you know. And the response that is omitted is, you can go fuck yourself, right? <laughs> Please pay your fair share. I'm sorry, what did you say? Oh, I'm sorry, my response is, you can go fuck yourself. Now, pay your fair share in the future, you guys. And if this is effective, may not necessarily just be used for what we considered aggressive campaigns by world leaders. It may be used as a tool to go after the oligarchy by itself just as a thing so pay your fair share may turn into sorry motherfuckers we're taking your shit end of conversation one-way conversation that will be fascinating now that would be an interesting thing to see um so we'll see that's the thing uh, when you look at this from a historical perspective that might be a fascinating outcome of this whole conflict because other than that you know there's a lot of tribal shit going on and all that kind of stuff. And who knows? All right. That's all I got. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Hey, look, what I just said may be full of crap or whatever. Who knows, you know, but it may be interesting to see that happening. This we may have unleashed a very um, vital weapon for people, the people to use against the elite. We shall see. All right, Roy Wood Jr. is coming right up. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. 
I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. All right, welcome back. It is a pleasure and an honor to have what I consider one of the funniest individuals out in the comedy scene these days. He is only, his trajectory continues to go up, you guys. Up, up, up. Uh, he is one of the <laughs> featured performers, I guess I have to say, on The Daily Show. I don't know what you guys are calling anymore. I but, don't uh, know. It's, we'll talk about that. Not Trevor. The black one that's not Trevor. <laughs> His latest uh, Comedy Central special came out a few months ago. Imperfect Messenger, proving that he is the perfect messenger for our times. Mr. Roy Wood Jr. Roy, welcome to Black on the Air. Nice to see you. Thank you for having me. And, and you know, to the whole Daily Show point, yes. I have to forever say thank you to you and oh. Jessica Williams for preparing me. Mm-hmm. For what the fuck that job was going to be <laughs> as a black person. White Senac, too, man. Mm. Yeah. Wyatt gave me some advice once I was like off and rolling, like he and I talked a little bit. But yeah. I remember I remember the first two weeks when we were doing the test shows with Trevor, mm-hmm. Jessica was kind of like, here's what to expect. And this and that. Jessica was still on the show then. Correct. Correct. Oh, Jessica okay. was still there first year of Trevor. Oh, okay. And then at. And this is like not like knowing you, but not knowing you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you pulled me to the side on like some just like because it, it was at the, it was at the premiere party. And I was like, right. It's I, I don't know. It, it's still one of those things where like people you watch and respect, and then you get a chance to have a conversation with them. And sure. the first conversation is, motherfucker, here's everything you need to know. Here's yeah. everything you need to the job. <laughs> I'm like, can I be happy to meet you? There's no time for that right now. Goddamn Republicans are coming. <laughs> <laughs> They're almost here, nigga. You got to get ready. <laughs> They're coming for you. I remember that yeah, party. Man. That was fun. It was so much fun talking to you. You were so excited about it and everything. And we were. Happy. I think Trayvon was there too. Right? Yes. Yeah. yeah Trayvon we Free was still there. It's. I, I'll be honest though, man. Now in approaching year seven. Yeah. My wow. seven year anniversary. Congrats. Is it though? <laughs> <laughs> from a health standpoint yes i understand congrats employment yes job funny but fuck man to carry this when you first got there the daily show was the john stewart daily show his incarnation of it it's a satire of the news you have correspondents out in the field trevor you know took that and slowly kind of made his own but when the pandemic hit it really changed drastically you know it was trevor in a bunker no audience yeah you know, no audience and that type of thing. And he, they've kind of kept that bunker. I'm calling it bunker because it feels. Yeah, it's isolated. No, it's isolated. It's a little bit of a criticism because I miss the laughs from the audience on The Daily Show. I have to tell you, you guys are so hilarious. And by the way, including Trevor Noah, who 
is one of the biggest comedians around the globe, for Christ's sakes. It's like, why yeah. Why are there not people laughing at this show, Reader? I feel like at some point we've got to go back to an audience also because to. New York City Mayor Eric Adams said, fuck the bullshit, we open. Come on down here and get this COVID. I'm not bad we, we tourists. Yes. <laughs> New York's got to survive, man, in one way or another. <laughs> During the pandemic, it, it wasn't as much as a, of a shell shot because everybody right. across the board was doing it. Exactly. But then we moved, we moved to Times Square. We left the traditional, you know, 20 year Hell's Kitchen, whatever. Right. And we go to Times Square to the old TRL studios. Was that a Comedy Central edict or something? Like they're just shaking? I believe so. I think they were just trying creatively. Well, I know part of it is that our ratings went up during the pandemic. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, corporate, they're going to go, well, it seems that in testing, our test audiences do not give a fuck about real laughs. Therefore, <sighs> We will put you in the room that is cheaper. That's the correlation that they draw, you know, as opposed to people were at home all the time. So I was cool with doing the show in my bedroom to no audience because yeah. it was understood and it was also received as such. But then exactly. when everybody else started going back to studio and we were in studio as comedians, we had to relearn how to do stuff in the studio because... Right. You're kind of waiting for crew laughter, or are we waiting for laughter at all? So right. it definitely has been an adjustment. And people have seen it in rehearsal already, except for, you know, the things that have been rewritten, maybe. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a lieutenant in this army, so I don't make calls on what the generals do. I My job is to show up and figure out a way to fucking make it funny. they still sending us out the door on these field pieces. Now, that shit is still normal. Mm-hmm. That part of the job is still, is still cool, but... You know, there's days, man, where you know you'll you'll be you'll be listening to somebody. Like I just went to Florida on some critical race theory shit, and I spent mm-hmm. a day and a half at the Capitol talking to people on both sides. <laughs> and you just be sitting across from a motherfucker, and you just be like, he's never gonna see black people as human. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing I can say. There's nothing in this interview mm-hmm. that's gonna make him ever think otherwise. And his base is going to follow. And it's it makes me sad. Are you sitting there thinking as a commentator, as a journalist, as, as a satirist, as a comedian? Because like, it sounds like you're kind of even out of the comedian role in that situation. Have you evolved in that position that you're in? I ain't no journalist correspondent no more. Motherfucker, I'm me. When I'm talking to you, I'm talking to you as me. Like, that's been right. the biggest change since 2020. That has been a big change. The journalistic idea is people say some people would say opponents critics of your stance would say and now i'm just like we don't agree with that like mm-hmm. i will just straight up especially when you're talking about issues about race mm-hmm. and you're talking about oh supporters of critical race theory would say that your florida law is taking black i go explain to us how you not take it so now Especially when it's talking about identifying with blackness, mm-hmm. I'm black, dog. Like I, I, I understand journalistic objectivity for the sake of comedic, whatever the fuck. But I'm tired. I can't do that no more. I'm, <laughs> I'm in, I'm in your face as a motherfucking black man, dog. Tell me right. to my face as a black person why this makes sense to you. It's interesting you say it like that. Is it because? The shield of having that veneer of being this fake journalist or whatever, and there's maybe different ways you're going to attack a piece as opposed to you just disagree with somebody. Like when you're doing it under a fake news format, there may be different beats that you want to get in there. You know what I mean? Just to 
have a type of fake journalistic story, but now you're kind of presented as yourself interacting with it. Does that kind of narrow the scope of how you approach these? Yes, it does. It's not always the most comedically intelligent approach right. to race-based field pieces because That's what I mean. right. you get the subject comfortable with them thinking that you don't hold the position that other right. black people hold so you can get more out of the interview. Right. There ain't but so many years you can do that. Yeah. Before your soul just one day just go, man, this motherfucker say something to him. <laughs> like right. just in your head, right. you know, your conscience is on your shoulder. Mm-hmm. But that's what makes Jordan Klepper so beautiful is that Klepper perfectly maintains that, hey, I'm just here to just find out how you feel. I don't know. I, I have no opinion. Just, just tell me. Okay. So you think it's that? Even though it's that. Even mm-hmm. though it's this, you still think it's that. All right, great. Thank- and the people, that's how the people end up looking crazy because they never feel like they're arguing with the other side. Mm-hmm. And so it's disarming, you know. And, you know, they, they, don't get me wrong. There's field pieces where I can do that. But just right. when it's stuff that's near and dear to the heart, dude, I got a five-year-old. I got to figure out how to teach him yeah. slavery and that the world is fucked up without horrifying them. And if right. the schools aren't going to help me do that, how do I go about doing it? You know, so... Mm-hmm. That part of the job is definitely different from John Stewart era, Obama, last year of Obama. Hillary's coming soon. It's mm-hmm. gonna be an easy. Oh shit! What the fuck just happened? Mm-hmm. Which is what you know. We kind of got tossed into the deep end, you know. Once Trump got elected, and right? I think that night was the night that the show, you know, pivoted in its entirety. I think the one luxury though that I think I have under Trevor because I don't know if I'm cut from the same cloth as like you or Jessica or Wyatt in the sense that, or even Asif Asif Manvi too, Mm -hmm. where, you know, these correspondents of color under John, y'all had a lot more freedom to go at the person. Mm -hmm. And Trevor is more of a issue Based, he targets the issue because he believes you know the people change the issue is going to be there so let's go after the issue so comedically that fits my style a little bit better to figure out a way to deconstruct the system or criticize the system as a whole versus hey this guy is a piece of shit like that's just not stylistically I can't do that like I can't dunk like Oliver I can't dunk like Klepper yeah the early ones really did that kind of dunking but like my relationship in the Daily Show with John, because I would fly in and do those because I was busy doing stuff in L.A., you know, so I wasn't at the show all the time. So it gave me a little more freedom in how I approached those things, you know. And so I would always try to deconstruct what is this story that we're telling? I always approach it from a story point of view. And I always had to be firm with John about, yes, you guys are saying that, but I wanted to make sure this wasn't a white gaze type of story, you know, Bro. or that lens. And so I always had yeah. to stand firm. And it's like, niggas, I get what you're saying, <laughs> you know, but trust me, <laughs> you know, this is this is how. And John was very cool about that. He always respected, you know, that type of thing. And I was able to talk to him directly because, like I said, I would come in as a free agent kind of, you know, and do my thing and then leave, you know. So, yeah. I, you know, it was always, oh, well, let's listen to Larry, because I think sometimes familiarity can breed contempt, that type of thing. If if you're around niggas all the time, you go, yeah, yeah, Nick, we've heard your thing already. Let's do it this way. Yeah, you know? we're going to do it our way. Yeah, yeah. Where you get to come in and you're like the specialist. I'm like, oh, get out the way. Larry's here. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the sniper. I was the racial sniper. And the, But the pieces 
had a certain feel because of that, you know, because they really were more of a collaboration more than just a rolling out of someone's pure idea, let's say. Yeah. You know, they always evolved over us doing it, you know, from the first draft to that last one of just really going at it from a certain point of view. I really enjoyed that part of it, but I feel your exhaustion with it because there can be a time limit as to what you feel you have to say about any particular thing. One of the conversations we had when you first started, and this is kind of interesting because you kind of foreshadowed the exhaustion over the racial stuff. We had that conversation years ago. You're like, man, these these motherfuckers think this is all I got to talk about. I got, I have so much more I want to talk about. Remember that conversation when we had that? And I yeah. said, Roy, you just, we had drinks. I said, Roy, you, you, you just got to go in there and just say, man, I got to talk about this too. You know, do you feel like you're still unfortunately have to be that messenger? No, well, it, it's shifting now. So the, over the last year, right? So I started hosting, we do a beyond the scenes podcast for the daily show where mm-hmm. we basically follow up on old topics, talk to, you know, either new people or previous guests. And, you know, motherfucker, where you at now? Did, did the law pass? Motherfucker, <laughs> is the nigga still in jail? <laughs> That's funny. We have a continuing conversation about topics that originated <laughs> on the day. So on the show, you're already consuming all of the worst shit every day. Right, Plus exactly. Two local papers. I read two local papers. I pick two random cities. I try to read two local papers. That's the other thing that's exhausting, by the way, is you're seeing, you're consuming the worst shit all the time. For jokes. All the time. Yes, exactly. And you're batting like 150. <laughs> you drag the net and it's just terrible shit. Exactly. And you might get two or three bits and you pitch it and it still might not get approved. Yeah. So the show is all of this divisive shit. Right. The podcast that I started hosting last year is seeing where we are in the present on divisive shit. Mm-hmm. My stand-up for the last three specials is all dissecting race and social issues and civic yeah. blah, blah, blah. It's around the clock. And the first thing to go was the stand-up. I already made the decision this year. I'm not doing what I've been doing. I, like At least on stage, I didn't yell about race and police reform and mm-hmm. prison sentencing. I'm done. I, I'm from. I don't know what else. I know I want to talk about my father. I want to go inward. Mm-hmm. My journey's on some inward shit now because I cannot build everything that I do around these things because ultimately it's not healthy mentally, man. Yeah, it's it just not. And it's been a relief to not to be done with the hour special last fall. Mm-hmm. I haven't gone and done sets because normally at this point I would be. What's the next hour? All right. Mm-hmm. What are the new things? Be? Ooh, vaccine mandates. Ooh, I'm going to do some jokes about that. I'm just like, eh. I'll go up once a month as a favor to a friend. There's some shit I'm trying to, there's like a stand-up hybrid show I'm trying to develop, but mm-hmm. I'm hosting. I'm not, I don't have to write a new hour. So, yeah, I'm, I'm burnt on those things. So it's fun. And that's kind of where the pandemic helped the show creatively is that we started exploring because we couldn't go out in the field, it changed the type of pieces we did. Mm-hmm. So we can do a lot more in-house stuff. Man, I talked to some nigga up in Connecticut who walked away from a Fortune 500 company job to start the first black-owned cereal company. Mm-hmm. There's no pressure in that. There's no, <laughs> Already there's no crazy Republican. Nigga O's? What are they called? Yeah. <laughs> Proud Puffs is what they're called. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And then that's what I did. I showed them all of these different versions of Syria. So you already right, right, know. Right. Like that that's a relief. I'm more interested in mm-hmm. that 
you know, than anything else. Like, this is the type of shit I'm mad about. So at home in Birmingham, the high school I play baseball at, it's the only decent city school that, in my opinion, tries to cultivate black youth into baseball and mm. they raise money and you know it, it's it's expensive sport for kids to play at a, at a competitive level these days where it used to be you could play stickball on the streets and you could become a good baseball player not no more you got to be playing year round which means you need Takes parents money, yeah. with money who can afford the hotel so you know they do they do all these fundraisers or whatever but there is a field where they play that is historic in Birmingham and nobody mm-hmm. will pay to keep the lights on so the kids can't play there anymore. So they have to travel. It's like those are the stupid hurdles that help keep black kids out of baseball. Mm-hmm. You motherfuckers won't pay the light bill? Bet. Bitch, I'm bringing cameras. Right. <laughs> you know, it's what's funny is I noticed in your last special, it was more thoughtful, but also it seemed like you were uh, going at a slightly different pace than I've noticed you before. (laughs) (laughs) You seemed a bit more deliberate, you know. (laughs) No, you weren't faster. You were slower, you know. That was was one of the notes I tried. Beating them to my head, like, slow the fuck down. No, I never thought you were too fast, you know. But there was definitely more of almost, in fact, the last part was a very thoughtful type of section, you know, where... It was almost like we were hanging out in your living room and we're just having a funny, quieter conversation with Roy Wood Jr. for part of it. And because some of it was about police, was it the George Floyd thing that was the first kind of impetus for this particular special? Was that like uh, maybe emotionally where you were starting from? Because when you're talking about police, you talk about police a lot in it. it. It's not coming from the earlier Roy Wood, who's blasting, blasting, blasting. It's coming from more thoughtful Roy, it seems like, if that's fair. Yeah, it's like, why can't you all understand this? Like, there was a part, I think, that didn't end up in the special where it was just talking about how police pay all this money for military-grade equipment that, for the most part, sits up. And, and you know, I'm not doing the joke, but, but basically... You don't need a tank every day. So departments could share one tank Mm -hmm. and decide like the other municipalities in that region. You all share and take the money you save and put it into education because literacy helps to stop crime as well. And talking Mm -hmm. about teachers and, and like really trying to figure out why these base level logical choices aren't being made. And then just making jokes off the ridiculousness that nobody can seem to connect those dots. Right. Yeah, 80% of that special was written post-George Floyd. Mm -hmm. Um, I probably had, you know, before the shutdown, I probably had about 10 to 12 minutes of it that still stayed, that made it, but pretty much everything, like before the shutdown, I had 40 minutes but I had to throw out most of it because it just felt it just felt tone deaf. It didn't match the mood of what I was wanting to talk about. I mean, even that last story at the end of the special about my next door neighbor that's mm-hmm. locked up for murder. Right. That's very moving story. Yeah. I went back and forth about do I even tell yeah. this story? But George Floyd and sentencing and, you know, all of this stuff. Like I just started thinking about it. I'm just like, yeah, Frank. sometimes I think and this is going to sound weird. I'm like, fuck, man. Why is this shit got to happen? Now I can't do the comedy I want to do. <laughs> like, yeah. from a selfish standpoint, it's like, I don't want to be all sad in my comedy. I want to talk about some funny stuff. You're almost resentful of these world events sometimes, you know. At least you can get it to television. Imagine developing that bit in a comedy club on a Thursday night for eight months. Yeah. 
What was that like, by the way, in the COVID era? Nobody want to hear all this. Like, folks was coming to escape the issues in the world. Exactly. Like, the people who showed up, they showed up to laugh hard, and they didn't want to be reminded about everything that was going on. But all I had was jokes about <laughs> what was going on. Y'all saw George Floyd, right? Yeah. You know what I think about that? No. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, like, you start talking mask mandates and all of that shit. Like, that's why I, like, I like did like a quick jab about COVID and then yeah. get the fuck out of that topic because you know like people just, just didn't want to hear it and and then it's also where do you sequence that in your act and that was also the bigger issue is that you're still competing with check drop which is a 10 minute distraction yes, that's a club reference for a lot of people don't realize <laughs> yeah in the middle of your act near the end everybody's paying their bill and no one's paying attention oh, it's the worst it's the worst. So that's hey, when a lot of comedians take out the guitar. It's a <laughs> yeah, you almost have to do a bullshit joke as a palate cleanser to get everybody back centered. Right. And then, all right, now that you're centered, let me tell you about my friend who I believe was unjustly sentenced in a robbery that turned into a murder that wasn't his fault. And jokes. <laughs> Not a comic premise. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. that, that sounds like an interesting comic premise. Do tell Roy Wood Jr., please. Yeah. Now, we bagged up phones for four months in New York, and I did this mm-hmm. thing called, we called it a test kitchen, where we just, it was basically just a new joke of Palooza, me and a couple other comics. Mm-hmm. And it was understood that it was, this is, you are all a test audience. You are a focus group. It's kind of the Chappelle approach, right? Bagging up phones so people can't record direct and have it leak out. Because you you want to have the opportunity to have some freedom with having things fail, really, and not. I need not to know where the line the is, and yes, you find exactly. that by crossing it sometimes. Right, exactly. But you know, thankfully, everybody was cool in those situations, and they understood that they were watching a work in progress, mm-hmm. and so that gave me the three, four months I needed to really hone it. Wow, and that's this amazing. was outside of comedy clubs. We didn't do this in comedy clubs either, which I felt was important because it psychologically changed how people receive the information there's just i don't know there's just a certain superiority complex that comes with a comedy club where the audience members are <laughs> bred to believe we'll tell you what's funny mister yeah it's that apollo what mindset. is your basic process of putting a special together as opposed to just doing your act which i want to talk about in a second kind of your journey but like when you're doing that now i mean i know this was very specific do you start with like things that you just want to talk about and you you go you find jokes for that or do things come up that you find funny you write you write those down which is another approach you say how do i put this together and create a show how do i reverse engineer it mm-hmm. yeah it, it's a little bit of both it's like cooking you go in your kitchen imagine your kitchen is my joke book and you decide all right what meal am i going to prepare mm-hmm And I look through all the pages of the jokes and I go, this goes with that. This pairs with that. That thought pairs with that. That'll segue. How much time do I have? 38 minutes. All right. Mm. bet I still need to cover another 20 minutes. Mm. Hmm. All right. I got to go grocery shopping. So what else is out there that I want to talk about that pairs with this 40? Because you can have bits that are funny, but tonally they just do not go with anything else. You could do that in a club, but if you're going to do your show, it does. it's not really the show, right? Correct. And so that becomes the issue 
as you're building the hour is figuring out, okay, tonally, this joke goes with this joke. You know, I'll give Mm -hmm. you an example. Like I talked about police reform and the Mm -hmm. police need to just do their job and people will leave them alone. Firefighters do their job and we don't even talk about them shooting black people with hoses. The part that was cut from that bit was the National Guard murdered motherfuckers and we don't even bring it up anymore Mm. because they just do their job. The National Guard shows up. They give you some soup after a tornado. And if you need a boat ride during a flood, we don't say nothing about. And that goes into a whole thing about how the National Guard is mistreated. But as I started looking at the hour, I go, oh, I made the same point twice. Right. Police need to do their job. Firefighters do their job. You're done. National Guard doesn't need to be a part of this meal. But once the hour special is done and completed and traditionally, if I were going back to the same style as I have the last three hour specials and I would open up my cabinets again, the National Guard piece that didn't make it into the last special, that would be part of the new spine. Hmm. Well, what does this mean about the troops? Well, what else do you want to say about it? Well, you ever notice there's there's not a lot of video games set in Vietnam. Every video game is either a war we won or in the future. Mm-hmm. They don't want to <laughs> talk about when we when we got to add. They don't like dabbling in the mass whoopings too much. Well, that's funny. Let's exp- so then after that, it's just research, man. I love how you find where your point of view is there. I love that when you talk about that, you know, because that's where you connect with audiences, where it's not just there's a funny thing out there and you're telling us you're you're picking something out and you're finding that slice of it. That is how you want to look at this. You know, that you feel nobody yeah. is quite looking at it at like the way you're looking at this slice, right? But at its core, it's still a joke about war propaganda. Right. And it's still a joke about how we're made to be okay with war if you really look deep down at the way war is marketed to us. Absolutely. You know, on television. But we were made I'm to not, love G.I. Joe's when I was a kid, you know. Correct. And so I'm not here to be super wokey woke, but I am trying to find something that's a little bit more, you know, just an alternate entry point. Like this is like this is stuff that didn't make it into the I'm just reading you random notes. No, this is from great. My iPhone. Uh, white people aren't going to take niggas to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe in one of the first trips, just to see what's going on. <laughs> we'll be on that first journey to Mars. You can bet that. Now, why aren't white people taking niggas to Mars? Why not? The only one who went up so far is Michael Strahan. Mm-hmm. He's like an exception to like niggas. Like he's not like right. But that's that's the entrepreneurial space thing. Yeah, but that's how right. they're trying to get us okay with it. But they're not gonna let us go to Mars with them. Mm-hmm. Like you can't get qualified for a home loan on Earth. You ain't gonna afford a pod <laughs> in Mars. One that I really wanted wanted to do, but it just didn't fit. Was just about how rappers now. When you talk about depression and mm-hmm. the fact that so many young rappers are dead and like dying is the new single. Mm. Like. At least I got to enjoy my rapper for two or three albums before he got shot. Mm-hmm. The new so so dark. No, but when you think about why children have why why youngins have such a don't give a fuck attitude, even mm-hmm. their heroes die. Right, your hero was supposed to live. So you know what I mean. So of course you don't have any hope for yourself because every other rapper, you know, is so mm-hmm. that doesn't fit the whole run about 
public and criminal justice reform. But there's something about the right. black condition within that and how black entertainers die. And, you know, it, you start that joke in some basic shit about just how most of these new rappers I don't know. I ain't never heard of them until they die. You know, like that's how I know I'm old. It's because I don't recognize dead rappers anymore. <laughs> but that's a joke on right. me and my age. And right. But, it, but that's a, I call that dynamite. That that joke is juggling dynamite. I tried it at a college. And mm. them 20-year-olds, they was, hey, like every syllable, they was listening closely. Interesting. Because if you disrespect Pop Smoke or you say something sideways about Triple X or Nipsey, <laughs> Right. These right. are real people. I'm even, no, <laughs> even real. Nipsey may be a little too old now in that. Uh, Correct. With the young people. Yeah. So, you know, like I'm interested in that, mm-hmm. in that part of our condition. But again, that's a joke, man. I might not touch that for five, six years because now I know I, for sure mm-hmm. I want to talk about my family and my father like mm-hmm. that's all i know i got nothing else i don't have a single joke down other than some finding your root shit about yes. um henry lewis gates <laughs> oh i love that area i love how you say dynamite because when i'm talking about writing with writers and stuff i always tell them if there's something that you think to yourself oh i can't write about that i say no yes you need to write about that <laughs> you know and uh i feel like Dynamite are those things, and I'm making this up so you may have a different idea, that there's danger in there for you. It's an area that has some danger. Uh, do you find that there's any of that in when you're talking about your father right now or your personal life, do you feel there's dynamite in there for you to expose that you can attack from a joke point of view where you're going, oh, shit, yeah. No, I. it's not that I want to talk about this. There's shit in here that... You know, it might push me or that type of thing. The trick is telling the truth about my, and, and I said this on stage once or twice, good father, bad husband. Mm-hmm. And the trick is maintaining that balance throughout the show and talking about my confliction and emotions based on things that happened in my childhood mm. while, main, while, while making sure that the audience never loses respect for my father what was your relationship with your dad growing you grew up in alabama right yeah 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 and your dad was a journalist yeah man i don't know if it's civil rights journalist is the right because it just suggests he's at a march with the word press in his hat <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> with those big flash cameras and everything right? yeah i mean my father's a radio commentator and mm-hmm. spoke a lot of, about a lot of black stuff embedded mm. out there pretty much every horrible black thing from the from rhodesian civil war South African riots, hmm. black soldiers in Vietnam. He was on the front lines with them getting shot at, covering how black mm-hmm. platoons were getting mistreated. Came back to Chicago during civil rights, Black Panther era, and was at WVON, uh, which was like the black talk station when they started. Like he was one mm-hmm. of the first people through the door, you know, along with the president or whatever. And like that was like the voice of black news. Mm-hmm. For a very long time during, a, you know, a very important era, you know, and even up until his death, you know, he just that's what he stood for. He stood for doing things and covering stories that uplifted black people or kept black people aware and abreast of what was going on politically. Mm-hmm. You know, did you ever have conversations with your dad about his work at all? What what was what were your conversations about? I went with him to speaking engagements. I remember you know, my dad died when I was 16, but I remember that last year. When I was 15, I got my learner's permit and I kind of became his chauffeur. 
because mm-hmm. you know it was a perfect marriage. You know, I wanted to drive. He he didn't want to fucking drive. That's he was awesome. Old though, and you know, cancer was starting to make him tired anyway, so it was perfect. And so he drive me down. He he um he had a radio show he did at Alabama State every Saturday morning. So we would drive the hour to Montgomery, and wow. I would watch him. I would sit in the studio and just watch him just for an hour off the dome. Sometimes he would make a couple of bullet points. Like, knowing what I know now, it was a set list. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We had a TV in the house dedicated to C-SPAN, and he had mm-hmm. a tape recorder in front of it. Like, just old school, just pulling pulling audio to listen to. And he would listen to the C-SPAN hearings mm-hmm. on the way to Montgomery and make notes, and then he would go in the air and spit what he had to say. And I guess that's kind of where, you know, I learned a lot of it. But, you know, I was too young to ask the right, right questions you know you've 11 and 12 you go into some church and your daddy yelling about racism and some like i was backstage during jesse jackson's primary run in 84 wow. wow but you don't think about you're, it yeah, at the time. Pup, it just, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just like I'm, this is jesse jackson mr wood is going to be the next president whatever where's the snacks <laughs> need the rice krispies what was alabama like for you as a kid growing up did you have a sense in the area you grew up in that things weren't how they probably should be? Or was it a little more innocent for you where you grew up? It was innocent. Birmingham, you know, for what, for what people think Alabama is, Mm -hmm. it is that, but Birmingham is black as fuck. Like Birmingham is on some Wakanda shit. (laughs) Like it's damn near 80% black in Birmingham Metro. That's why that bus boycott was so effective, right? Um, yeah, because it's because, us. We the only customers. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's like, wait, niggas are going to stop riding the bus? That's all we got on the bus. Right? We moved to Birmingham <laughs> from Memphis when I was in the third grade. Mm-hmm. I might have had one white classmate per mm-hmm. class until high school. And they were trailer park white. Mm-hmm. Like the the ones who couldn't white flight it. Mm-hmm. And they were still <laughs> stuck in the hood. <laughs> White stuck. Yeah, white stuck. <laughs> the whites who couldn't flight. Right. I met one Latino in the seventh grade, mm. like a Russian, like some foreign exchange. So like this idea mm-hmm. of just white people running around in pickup trucks chasing niggas every day, that wasn't that. Everything I did was black. I went to the black mm-hmm. boys club. I went to a black church. Like mm-hmm. the only time you saw white folks was when you went to the suburbs to go shop. And... You know, it wasn't until sixth grade I had a white classmate and we got along really well. And we tried to set up a play date to hang at each other's houses. And he lived in a pretty rednecky part of town, pretty rednecky suburb. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we lived deep in the hood. We lived in West End. And my daddy, being my daddy, I ain't going all the way out there. Robot, I ain't taking you all the way out there. And the white boy's daddy was like, nah, I'm not coming to West End as a white man in a nice car. You can forget that shit. So they met literally downtown and would do a kid swap. <laughs> and that's how we hung out. Wow. And knowing what I know now that I'm older, oh, y'all didn't fuck with each other. But y'all called a truce because the kids. Right. Because the kids like each other. But you don't you don't notice that when you're young but you know growing up around my dad you know he was definitely loved and revered in the community and did a lot for a lot of people but you know there was also a lot of days where you know he didn't come home you know and you have I have two younger half brothers who have a totally different childhood experience Mm. with him Mm -hmm. and and those are the things you don't think about that I didn't think about until I had my son 
when I had my son and you start unpacking, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this with my boy. Well, wait, how should I do it? Well, how, who did it with me? Oh, shit, not dad. All right, well, I'm going to do this with my boy. Well, how did I go about doing that? With well, who did it? Shit, that wasn't my dad. And you start, this running list starts happening in your head of all of the moments that you felt like you missed, that you felt like you were cheated out of because your father made other choices. And mm-hmm. be it right or wrong, it's, it is what it is. And so looking and unpacking that, I know I'm not alone in that type of confliction, especially right. as a black man. So I think there's something beautiful in that. And how do you love the imperfect while acknowledging the ripple effects that the imperfections maybe had on you while also making sure that you don't carry those same imperfections and pass them on to your child. Right. Legacy. And one of the toughest things for a child to understand is that their parents are actually people. You know, when you get past the, the deification stage and the letdown from the gods coming down from the clouds (laughs) <laughs> you know, and having <laughs> enough humanity to realize, you know, what, they're not gods and that's OK, you know. Yeah. And and it takes being a parent to understand, you know, mm-hmm. how how complicated love can be, especially as it relates to career and providing mm. and finding your own happiness as an individual is as important as being present for the child, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And looking at how my father chose to navigate that, you know, right or wrong, I just think there's something rich in that. And, you know, I can always circle back to jokes about the National Guard. Right. It sounds like being a father is also affecting you as a performer and what you're wanting to choose to talk about. Is that true? Is that like starting to creep into your comedy soul right now? Yeah, it's a little scary. And what's weird <laughs> is that. You know, when I started, it was like two years before we moved to Birmingham, mm-hmm. I would get sent to Birmingham. My mom and I, we were still in Memphis. I would get sent to Birmingham every summer for like two, three months. Like that mm-hmm. was a deal my parents had. Like, all right, if you're going to take this job in Birmingham and just come back here on weekends in the summer, you got the boy. But the problem was that the Birmingham school system didn't end for another month. Mm. And my dad didn't trust leaving. I was a latchkey kid growing up because my mom, grad school, all that shit. I was right. first grade cooking, like <laughs> cooking my own meals and shit, exactly. like Hot Pockets. But I could, yep. I was a self-sustained child. I did not see my mom until 730 as a first grader, which is fucking wild. When I learned how to fry bologna, the whole world had changed, <laughs> you know. <laughs> the world changed. That bologna was done, man. It had no chance once I learned how to fry. So my dad not wanting to pay for a babysitter and not wanting to leave me at home alone, this motherfucker would make me go to school. For Hmm. the first month for the first month that I was in Birmingham, I still went to school. So he would get up at four thirty, we would be out the door at five, he would do the news from five thirty until seven. And then at seven AM Frankie Palmer would come pick me up and take me over to Kingston Elementary and just put me in any random motherfucker's class. No paperwork, no immunization. Oh my god. Just a kid at, like and so my wow. dad would put me in whatever grade I was headed to, with the idea being this your sneak preview of whatever you gonna get back in Memphis. Right. But from 5.30 until 7 a.m., I sat on the floor and watched my father just do the news and rip and read AP Wire stories. And, you know, last year 
while I was doing, you know, a bunch of daily show stuff in the house when the whole house was a studio and my boy was homeschooling. It's just one of those weird moments where you go, ah, shit, life just repeated itself. And it's beautiful. It's 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 beautiful. But then there's a moment of hesitation where you wonder how much of this is going to repeat itself Mm -hmm. and how much of it can I prevent and be proactive on. So, you know, you're trying to fix a problem that you're also diagnosing concurrently. And I think that's the trick with fatherhood or parenting in general is figuring out what they did wrong while still trying to do other shit correctly. You could also focus on what they did right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, you, you <laughs> You're like, yeah, in. I you guess so. In. But you it's, that in. it's better to focus on what they did Come wrong. On, I'm a comedian. <laughs> you know, it's all about the bit that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it you can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Are you actually a political person or no? Because I I don't know what that answer is. You know, even though I know that you talk about political things, that stuff. But are do you feel you're a political person? Are you interested in that stuff? I feel like it's more about humanity. Yeah. Where's the jokes? How can we be decent to each other? So, you know, right. I like swimming in, in any topic. You know, I'm not driven like that you know right i vote i go to a protest or two you know Mm -hmm. i show up but i'm more about bettering people if you really want to get funky about it i really care more about state and local politics i really don't care about dc at the level that i do alabama right i'm back in alabama once a quarter yelling about some shit to somebody or trying to fix something that's where things actually happen a lot of it is a dog and pony show at the national level yeah and to me that's where i feel like where can I be most effective? And mm-hmm. I don't think that, you know, and this is just my own perception of self where I feel like I'm more effective if I'm at home and I'm using my celebrity. Like if we talking about currency, my celebrity mm-hmm. dollar goes way further in Alabama than mm-hmm. it does in DC. So if we're talking mm-hmm. about influencing elected officials to do things that benefit people, I have more power there. I'm not John Stewart. I can't pull up to DC on some Zadroga act and get 
and get 9-11 survivors their proper benefits. Like that's a level of influence that I don't possess yet. Actually, Dave Chappelle has dedicated himself to local politics in his town. Yeah, man. yeah. He pulling up and telling them no to the to the development. See them at those city council meetings is hilarious. What's funny yeah, is that Dave dresses like a local when he's at them shits, but yeah. then he'd be on stage in like custom leather jumpsuits and shit. <laughs> This motherfucker has a card heart jacket. He's got his his flannel vest ready to go at all times. Nah, I don't think I'm political in that sense. Like, yeah, like like I don't think I could even host a show with the level of like even when you look at the nightly show, where Mm -hmm. to me your show wasn't always strictly about politics, but it was about where politics influence and intersect with blackness. And the black experience. Absolutely. I could fuck with that. Yeah, we were deconstructing blackness on the nightly show. So that's more interesting to me than just straight up foreign policy. Oh, my God. The act and the Mm -hmm. tariff that China put. I can't deliver that joke. I think a lot of people don't realize, and you can relate to this. I know that people always treat black like it's any other thing. You know, why we focus on skin color? They never quite understand that there's a point of view of black. And when I say black, I really mean black in America, because I do think it's different globally. You know, there's been there's overlap in maybe the way people have treated. But there's a certain point of view as a black American that we have that is unique. Then I'm sorry than anyone else's story. And when we come at things and deconstructing from that angle, our shit is just always going to be in a lane that's just different. Like. In the pandemic, black people in vaccines is not the same as everybody on the left and everybody on the right. There's a circle that covers both of those things. And people are in their own lanes for their own specific reasons because of that. They're not following the political lanes, you know. And and that's the thing that, you know, I'm very much interested in. You know, there there's definitely days where it's frustrating. But I also have to understand and respect that. For a lot of white people, the stories that we do on The Daily Show are their entry point into trying to figure out how to give a fuck about blackness and be an ally. So, you know, a lot of these stories that we're talking about with regards to black issues, niggas already know what's up. Like, it's just a matter of giving them the update. Exactly. They're not for us. But it's good when we have the ones that intersect perfectly where it's an update if you're black. And it's new information, if you like, like with the um, Ahmed Arbery citizens arrest law. We spoke with mm-hmm. a Georgia state rep called Gilliard about it. Mm-hmm. And the whole story was just about Gilliard trying to get the law changed where you can't detain people for three days. You can only detain them for 10 minutes. And I think like the compromise was like three hours or whatever it is. It's still enough time to kill a motherfucker. So it's like it's a pointless amendment that they made to the bill, you know, Georgia Republicans. Right. But that's something where black people already know about Ahmed Arbery, so I ain't got to talk about that. We're just talking about the law, and this is the nigga trying to change the law. Mm-hmm. And there, and the jokes are in that. So I think that part of it, you know, I don't know, man. There's a, there's a bit of a responsibility that comes with that that I think is, is dope. Because Trevor, you know, I can't speak for John, but I know... Trevin, let me cover some black ass shit, bro. Like I, I went to the twentieth anniversary of the Million Man March mm-hmm. with Daily Show cameras. Right. <laughs> like, That's funny. And but it was a great segment, 
And I can't think of any other show at the time other than you guys. And I don't think you all were sending field correspondents out yet at the time. Like, I can't I know for sure none of the white shows was going to send somebody down there Mm -hmm. and really get to the bottom of what the hell is going on so that people can stop making assumptions about what happens when millions of black people get together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's that part of it. I really do take as an honor you know, to be able to present some of the black experience for the white gays, but I cannot perform for the white gays, if that makes sense. Well, your comedy to me always covers both, you know, like one of your classic jokes, which, oh man, it always makes me laugh when I hear it. But when you talked about, um, patriotic songs for white people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they talk, the way they sing about America, I'm going to be proud to be in America. You know? America. And then where black people just tell you the places in America where it's safe for black people to be. I was like, yes. And to me, that's, that covers everybody because white people are already laughing about you know, the reflection of that. Yes, America's good enough. We don't even have to dissect yeah. it. And know? Will Smith is like, no. Miami. <laughs> yes. yes, Miami. <laughs> <laughs> James Brown says living in America, then names a yes, bunch of cities at the exactly. end. It's like, <laughs> that was brilliant to me. That just the naming of all the cities. Like there's this it's almost like it's the French resistance or something, you know, and they're giving us all this this coded information at the end of where the Nazis aren't, you know, it's safe to go in this pub. Yeah. You know, no Nazis are in there, you know. And that's a challenge and it's fun. Like I enjoy yeah. that. It's just that there is a lot of mining of shit you have to sift through to get those gold nuggets. <laughs> yes. And you know, and sometimes that's exhausting, man. It just, it really is. There's just days where you just don't want to take in all the bad news. Well, now I notice, and I'm a little bit jealous about this because I've told you before, you know, I want to work with you in, in, in certain capacities. Now you work with some other niggas and some stuff. I see you're doing movies now more. Got your own TV show. It's one movie. It's fucking, it's a Fletch reboot. Nah, nigga. I don't care what it is. It's one <laughs> movie. It's John Hamm, all right? He the star. I'm just the black cop. Have you guys shot that yet? Oh, yeah. That's in the can. Okay, like so that. what? what is this like? So this is you in a kind of a new arena doing features on this level, right? Um, is this something you saw for yourself? Or are you are the pure comedian who's like, nah, man, stand up, that's a thing. Fuck that other shit. Bill Burr said it best. I I don't remember what interview he said. He said, I never want my own thing. I just want to paratroop in on somebody else's shit. Be funny and get the fuck out. And that way, if it fails, (laughs) it's not my fault. Oh, God, that's so funny. John Hamm was cool, man. The only other movie I'd done before this, Steve Byrne had a stand-up movie he did called The Opening Mm -hmm. Act, where I got a couple of lines in that. And that you know was really mind-blowing was to do Space Force with, with Steve Carell, yeah. Who, sidebar, the Daily Show alumni, I know it's not as big a fr- of a fraternity as SNL. Mm-hmm. Right. But the love that you get from just on the strength of, yeah, you, you've you done that job. Absolutely. Let's fucking sit down and have a conversation. Exactly, yeah. And then I did Only Murders in the Building with uh, Steve Martin and Martin Short. And, like, that was mind-blowing. What was that like? I mean, I, I can't even imagine. Martin Short, by the way, people sleep on how big of a legend Martin Short is. We all know Steve Martin when you hear that. Although a lot of young people, I don't think, can appreciate Steve Martin. But uh, 
That must have been mind-blowing in and of itself, right? That level of friendship and chemistry that they had. Yes. Is, and I sat there in awe and, like, in a way disappointed that there is no black equivalent to yeah. that. And I wonder if that is because mm. black entertainment is so divisive or the machine doesn't allow two motherfuckers to shine. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's very much a rapper mindset. I got to be number one. I got to be on the top. Like, I don't think. Has there been anything since Harlem Nights where you could get enough black comedians on? The, I mean, the Coming to America yeah. sequel, maybe, but not with like people that have history like Steve Martin and Martin Short. Right. Like, the kings of comedy can never be the kings in exile. Of comedy. Yeah. (laughs) Like once they're done being kings or whatever. Yeah. And even they didn't really do anything together collaboratively after they They all, yeah, they all went their separate ways. So I don't, I don't know, man, but they were, they were fun to work with. I I still think though, and I'm kind of using some of this downtime this year to look into it though, bro. Like I really want to write and produce more. I really do enjoy that. I enjoy, I enjoy that part of it. I'm not, anti-acting or stand-up but Mm -hmm. there's more longevity and i think you can get more done behind the camera you know if it's something that fits me properly in front of the camera i think i'll take Uh it but you know like i i wish that i had the acting chops and the 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 charisma like say laurel like, like mm-hmm. there's just a certain aspect of I get it. Yeah, of he's acting yeah. that, mm-hmm. like, oh, I can't, I can't do that. Like, that's not my, that's not my thing. My thing is over here. I'm more weird, mm-hmm. you know, some William H Macy. <laughs> like, it's gotta <laughs> not a bad, not a bad choice no. though. But when it's right, <laughs> it's fucking yes. right. Well, see, that's the thing. I learned the lane that I had to be in. Like there was when I was doing stand up way back in the day, I always had a funny act. You know, it was kind of what you would call a writer's act because it was just stuff that made me laugh. Right. And uh, (laughs) a lot of different types of things, everything from impressions to bits to fake commercials to all kinds of stuff, you know. Uh, But the audience always loved it. I always did well. But I knew there was a certain point where. When I transitioned to writing and producing, because I said, Larry, are you Martin Lawrence? And the answer came back really fast. Like, I didn't even have to wait for that answer. It was like, no. I mean, that no was big, you know. And it said, are you Eddie Murphy? Are you that kind of large comedian? Like, are you that type? Do you have that type of thing? And it's like, no, you're you're niche. You're more, you're targeted. You know, what you do is is this type of thing. And I thought, I have to kind of find the place for me myself. Because Hollywood's not going to find yeah. my shit, you know. I got to create that space, you See, know. And I've always been like, I mean, originally, before I decided on this inward family shit that I want to start mm-hmm. figuring out this year. Like, dude, I went on Finding Your Roots, and he found out the name of the family that owned my family all the way back to the slave trade. That's crazy. So, and I, like, and I know where they live in Georgia. Like, right now, I know where the descendants mm-hmm. I got to pull up. Like, that's, I have to go live and experience, and then put that together but like this idea of like initially i was like well i'm gonna quit comedy i'm gonna quit stand-up mm-hmm. or at least wipe off the table everything stylistically that i've done on some switch to southpaw shit but first i want to go on this writing producing journey and see where that takes me oh my god what if this is 
the last special I would ever do, and I just don't know it yet. And, hmm. and I've been fascinated by three people, you, Byron Allen, and John Ridley. Wow. And the pivot on stand-up, and you never lost that sword. You know, you never mm-hmm. lose it. But no, you don't. You recognize that you had other things that you could do. You had. You recognize that you had other talents, and there's a fear that I'm still struggling to get over, which is the linear career option mindset, which we're bred, which we're indoctrinated into when we start entertainment. The only thing you can Absolutely. do is the thing you started doing. How dare you think to do anything else? Yeah. And now I I can feel it, man. I can feel myself daring to think. I cannot go back out on the road for 40 weeks this year talking about fucking Biden's dog biting somebody. It's, I can't. I can't. Right. right. So when they made that choice, like to the point where I was like emailing my agent, somebody get me John Ridley's email address. I've got to talk to this nigga. I'll give you the number. <laughs> yeah. Just his email. I don't want to bother this man, but like, because Byron Allen randomly in an elevator at a resort in Maui. <laughs> he was just on an elevator in a full suit. That's how you know this nigga never stops thinking about business. Right. Byron Allen was in fucking Maui in a suit just fucking and we talked about it a little bit and just how Mm -hmm. recognizing that it's okay to stop doing the thing if there's other things even if you don't know what those things are yet or how it's gonna grow like did you know when you decided all right i'm not eddie murphy Mm -hmm. did you know that everything else will fall because it's it's a new fear like it's like starting open mic all over again well first of all i realized i don't have to be because you know who am i to think i could even be that anyway first of all i mean eddie murphy's fucking brilliant right but secondly i had always had different things going on like i was a theater major and i studied playwriting you know and i my first union card was was in actors equity you know so i came from a a theater background and a creative background. My first job was at the Mark Tate Performer where we wrote a play through improvisation, you know, turned around as a young actor uh, during those days. So for me, it's always been about expression more than the job. Like people would say, I'll give an example. People say, Larry, how did you get into comedy? And I say, well, to be honest with you, I do stand up to get comedy out of me. Like, I'm in showbiz to get comedy out of me. I didn't get into comedy. If I worked at a bank, I'd be telling jokes, but they probably wouldn't appreciate it the way an audience does. So why don't I may as well tell those jokes in a place where people are going to appreciate it, you know? And so what I realized about myself is that comedy for me is an expression. It's not a job, you know? So where else can it be expressed? It can be expressed writing. It can be expressed producing. Sometimes it can be expressed performing, stand-up. Like, I realize there are many different avenues of expression for for my point of view. It doesn't have to be in this little box that Hollywood says I have to be in. And I was inspired by Keenan Ivory Wayans, Spike, Robert Townsend, and these guys who said, fuck these walls that are up against us. We're just going to do our own shit. You know, and that's what I was inspired by. And I decided to do that, you know, and just create space and do it and and attack it from different ways. So motherfuckers can't cage you because they love to do that, you know. But if I but I realized early on that when I said I don't have to be Eddie Murphy, I mean that in a empowering way where it's like 
I can be something that fits me, that is my glove, that is that perfect fit, not the OJ glove that you can't get on, you know, <laughs> you know, so, so now I, and that's what I realized and I made a path for myself and all that stuff, which is different. And even now I'm always constantly evaluating the different lanes, you know, like I did a movie with Brian Cranston and Annette Bing in August where I was the third lead. I mean, like, that's the type of shit I would have dreamed of like years ago. And it was one of those things where they just called and asked if I want to do it. And I'm like, let me, let me check my schedule. Let me fucking check my schedule was like my answer. You know, but I never dreamed I would, if I was just was trying to be an actor, I, that never would have happened. My career might've been over years ago, but, but now that I'm in a space that is my space, I'm able to do these different things at the same time while I'm producing a drama right now and I'm still writing pilots and I'm thinking about maybe going back on stage and doing some stand-up maybe but on my own terms you know targeted for what I want to do so it's on your own terms is how you want to approach it whatever it is that you want to do make it on your terms it's just it feels like I've spent the last since 1998 I've spent every year trying to do something because like that was what you're supposed to do and I enjoyed it I was fine enough at it and got enough traction every year to do it another right. year but now I feel like I'm 43 years old bro and I'm just now deciding what it is I want to do with my life you know what I mean like in a weird absolutely I know what you mean like, yeah okay I did that I've done three specials in five years mm -hmm. that's enough what do you want to do? You know right. what? That's a good question. I've never fucking sat and thought about it. What do I want to do versus what I'm good at versus what are the opportunities available to me now? And also still provide for the boy. But that's where I am. And I just, I don't know. I wake up every day. I do a little research. I do a little reading. I play a little PlayStation, which is nothing that I've yeah. done on a regular <laughs> basis five years. You know, When uh, I was in college, I sold bookstore to one summer. And it really kind of changed my life in so many ways. I, I wrote an essay about this a few years ago. But we did like a training week in Tennessee where people from all over the country came and all these people are giving speeches and they're trying to pump you up and do all these things. But there were a couple of things that stuck with me that week. And one I never forgot. And it was um, the saying was most people spend more time planning a two week vacation than they do planning their lives. You know, and I thought, mm. oh, shit, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> I mean, the amount of mental energy you put into planning a vacation if you put that same energy into planning your actual life like what's the type of life that i want like when people say man larry you're lucky you're lucky you have that i go no nigga that was a plan i saw this for myself i wanted to be in that position that's not actually what byron allen's doing is not accidental he's not that's not calculated luck. there's god there's damn. fortunate stuff that happens along the way you know there's luck on your path but your destination is not luck. There's luck on the path, but not the destination. Like, like he, Byron Allen, he saw where he is today. That shit is not luck. Jay-Z saw exactly, he saw exactly where he was going at the beginning of that, not at the end. You know? And the thing that happens after that is once you have that realization, then anyone who's in your way or in opposition or in any doubt in any shape, form, or fashion has to get the fuck out of your life. Well, you can recognize it. It gives you clarity. Yeah. You know? You go, I don't need to fuck with that because that's not where I'm going. But when you don't have clarity over it, you go, mm, maybe I should fuck with that. I'm not sure. 
And that's where people get off track. Yeah. And that part of it, I definitely have clarity on. And just any negativity has to get out my circle because it's impairing my judgment. I still don't know what I'm doing, but I know I can't do it with you around. So yeah, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. We ended with Roy firing everybody. Uh, Roy, it's so great talking to you. I mean, I feel like we could, you know, we could do this shit. For Let's a, drink you know, when for I get out time. west again, man. Absolutely. Let's drink. Anytime. Uh, or if I'm in, uh, are you in the city? Or yeah, I'm in the city. You? I'm in the city. Okay, I'm midtown. Next time I'm out there too. Midtownish. He's Roy Wood Jr., you guys. I can't wait for Fletch. Fletch was a hilarious movie back in the day. You know what? And they played this one to the book, and they played it a little darker. So it's not it's not John Hamm trying to be Chevy Chase. Good, because he's, he's got his own skill set. We've had 40 Batmans. You can have a fucking second Fletch. <laughs> yes, exactly. Has there been a black Batman yet, by the way? Mm, no. The, the Batgirl TV show, they're setting up cameras Johnson to be Batwing. He's kind of like nigga Batman, but not Batman, but like, you know, we'll see. Comic book nerds, by the way, this is a whole different conversation. Comic book nerds have some serious racial issues when it comes to colorizing some of these comics. Oh, they don't want, you want to talk about some anti-integration George Wallace standing in front of the comic book. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They're the George Wallaces. The current George Wallace. <laughs> Segregation now. Segregation tomorrow. Segregation forever in the Marvel Universe. In the Marvel Universe. <laughs> Love you, brother. All right, Roy. T- take care, my friend. Roy Wood Jr., you guys, and if you haven't seen it, uh, Please go see his special on Comedy Central. I think Paramount Plus. Yeah, streaming on too. Paramount uh, Plus. Paramount, yeah. yeah, Imperfect Messenger. By the way, they have all of his specials on there, so you can check it out there. Really funny. Talk to you later. Yes, sir. Sir.